He was on the run, and there were few places that he could hide. You see, his face was well known. People knew him. And so he had to find somewhere that was out of the way as he ran for his life. Now, there were a few people who, who had the same, the same heart that he had, the same desire that he had, and, and they kind of teamed up with him. But that just made them the enemy too. And so they were all in hiding, trying to catch their breath and figure out what could possibly be their next move. This man's name was David. And he was running from King Saul. He'd done nothing wrong but an insecure and probably somewhat deranged monarch was paranoid of David. Thinking that he was going to take the throne away from him and his son, Jonathan. David had no intentions of doing anything like that. He'd done nothing but honor his king. He was simply running for his life. Trusting that somehow God might make things right. In the Bible, in Psalm 142, it is a psalm that reflects David's heart and mind and soul at the time that he was hiding in this cave from King Saul. This really, once you know the setting, it helps to understand uh, exactly what was going on with David at the time. Psalm 142, and I'll be reading this out of the New American Standard Bible this morning. Psalm 142 I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. And I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. For there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. As I read this passage multiple times, that one little phrase from David's heart just just kept rising to the surface, where he says, no one cares for my soul. No one cared. What, what, a, what a statement of hopelessness. To think there's not one person that cares about my life. Not one person that cares about my soul. Not, re- not the real me. They either want something from me or they want me dead. That's it. No one cares for my soul. My soul, he says, it it feels like it's imprisoned in some dark, foreboding dungeon. 
Now, when you read that, some of you can actually relate to it. You felt that way. There was a point in your life, you weren't being chased by a crazy king. But at some point in your life, as you've endured things, you've had the same feeling. There's, not, there's no one that cares for my soul. I feel utterly and completely isolated, alone, and in the darkest of places. Now that is the setting. That is the sense that we want to enter into this message today. Let me remind you of where we've been. Two weeks ago, we began this series called Take Care, and the encouragement was to take care of your heart. From out of it flows everything. Take care of your heart. And we went further and we said we, you need to teach your children and your grandchildren to take care of their hearts too. Not to easily give their affections to people or to things. Then last week, we focused on the mind. Take care of your mind. Be careful what you allow to go up here into this computer that you have in your head because I can tell you once it gets up there it gets stuck and isn't it weird the things that you wish you could forget are the things that you remember and the things that you want to remember are the very things you forget I don't maybe it's just me there are things that I say boy I wish I could just erase that and it just it stays up there and it seems to replay a lot of times in the middle of the night but those things that I want to remember like where I put my keys. Those are the things that I just cannot seem to recall in a timely fashion. So we want to we take care of our minds, and we also want to teach the generations that come behind us to take care of their minds too. I don't know if you saw this, but in this recent killing that took place in California, seven college students killed by this guy who literally felt probably there's no one that cares about my soul. When it boils down to it, that's probably where he was. But part of what went into that, part of what went into that was what he allowed to get into his heart, what he allowed to get into his mind. And even when he wrote his little manifesto, I think it was entitled something like this. You can correct me if it's wrong. My twisted life. My twisted life. It's important we take care of what goes in our hearts. It's important we take care of what goes into our minds. Today we want to take another step along that path and encourage you to take care of your soul. Take care of your soul and teach those who follow after you to take care of theirs as well. Now you may have noticed because I mentioned it that that I actually used this morning the New American Standard Bible rather than the NIV or the Holman Christian Standard or, or the ESV or any number of other translations that I could have used. But I used the NASB this morning, and I did it for a particular reason. And that's because the New American Standard Bible chose to keep that Hebrew word, uh, nepesh. It chose to keep that Hebrew word translated as soul rather than what we see translated in some other ones as uh, my life or simply me. Now, I will go ahead and tell you, and we're not going to spend too much time on the Hebrew and Greek this morning. Uh, I will tell you, that is not a wrong translation to translate it my life or to translate it as me. It would have been a perfectly acceptable translation. So let me take just a few minutes to talk about uh, what, what Nepesh is. 
Nepesh is used 780 times in the Old Testament. So that's, that's a pretty good amount. 780 times. Based on what the context is, it can be translated as life. It can be translated as person. It can be translated as self. It can be translated as me. It can be translated as soul, depending on the context of the verse. The most common English translations that we find of these 700 incidences are soul and life. If we flip forward to the Greek New Testament, there, the, the Greek equivalent to that Hebrew word is uh, suke. And suke is also translated pretty much in the same way, soul, life, or self. Now, so let's focus on this a little bit because I intentionally chose a passage that used the word soul, not because it fit with my theme, but because I think it helps us to understand a little bit more what the soul is. We need to spend a few minutes knowing, okay, what is the soul? If we're going to talk about taking care of it, then I need to understand what it is. So Nepes is an expression of your unique personhood, literally of your unique self. It is who you really are. It is the totality of your person. And it's for that reason that we find the varying translations in the different translations, we find it translated a little bit differently. What they're trying to do is to find the word that most clearly expresses the intent of the author when they use it. And so I don't want to, I don't want to create more confusion, but I'm about to do it anyway. So bear with me. Bible scholars over the years have argued as to whether the, as human beings, we are a dichotomy or a trichotomy okay by dichotomy i mean are we body and soul where soul and spirit would be the same thing or are we body soul and spirit in other words three now we could arm wrestle over this if you'd like great scholars on both sides have taken up these points and they argue these points it is probably not something that keeps you up at night quite honestly if you just want to know where I come out, I'd be a trichotomist. Um, so, but you can research it and come down on your own. And the reason for that is in both Hebrew and Greek, there are distinct words that are used for soul and, and spirit. And I think that's important. And so here, let me give you the summary, okay? This is it. This is, this is really all you probably even want to know about this. A person is not a spirit, but a person has a spirit. A person is, however, a soul. The soul of the person is the essence of that person, himself or herself. Okay, get this. You have a spirit, but you are not a spirit, right? But you are a soul. This actual word is used in if, if when you see a plane go down or a ship go down, they'll say how many souls were lost. They're using it in the biblical sense. And so soul and spirit, I don't think, are exactly the same thing, although you can make an argument looking in the Bible that there's some similarities there, and that's true because they're both immaterial. You can't get your hands on either one of those. 
But in this instance, when we're talking about taking care of your soul, we're talking about taking care of the totality of who you are, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your passions, your character. It's all wrapped up in who you are, who you are as a soul, as a life, as yourself. So now you know what we're trying to take care of. Sounds like a big job, doesn't it? And it can be, but thankfully we aren't given no help. What does God's word tell us about taking care of our souls? Let's see if we can discover that this morning. First of all, we need to state that our souls need the presence of God. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Boy, that was probably the question you were all answering, you know, asking yourself last night. It's Saturday night. Oh, man, when when can I go meet with God? I just can't wait. Let me set my alarm clock early because I don't want to miss it. When can I go gather with other people and meet with God together? There, but, but what the psalmist is expressing here is this, this thirst for the presence of God, this hunger for the presence of God. I just can't wait to get into the presence of God. It is what I wake up looking forward to. It is what I go to bed at night looking forward to in the morning. I just can't wait to get to the presence of God. Now, some of you, some of you, there are things that you just can't wait for. Um, some of you have gotten it now. Some of you teachers and students just couldn't wait for summer. It's here. Okay. All right. Congratulations. You made it. All right. Uh, some of you uh, just can't wait for football season to start. I mean, you're enduring baseball. I mean, it's okay to watch the Braves from time to time, but man, I, I just can't wait till football season gets here. So you know what it's like to look for and to long for something, but we rarely experience this in the spiritual realm where we have this passion, this longing, this hunger, this thirst to simply be in the presence of God. Our souls need the presence of God, therefore spend time in God's presence. Spend time. If you want to take care of your soul, you must spend time in God's presence. Psalm 63, 1, you, God, are my God, and earnestly, earnestly, seriously, intentionally, I seek you, thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, some of you, this is as far as you need to go in this whole message. Because you look at this, and when you're honest with yourself, you go, that is not me. I don't have that hunger. I don't have that thirst. I don't have that longing. I look forward to so many other things in my life, but my quiet time in the morning is not one of them. I can't remember the last time that I, that I stopped to pray other than when there was food in front of I can't remember the last time that I just opened God's word and read it, not because I had to prepare for a lesson, but just because I, 
I wanted to, I wanted to hear what God was saying. I can't remember the last time that I said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go out of my way to be with God's people on Wednesday night or Thursday night or whatever night it was. No, most of the time it's an inconvenience for us. We force ourselves to do it. We have to take steps. We're told, we're told to connect. We're told to connect. And here's the deal. It's just like, it's, it's just like with your spouse. The more you really get to know that person, yes, there are frustrations, yes, there are challenges, but the deeper that love becomes, the, it changes from attraction to real affection. And you begin to serve one another out of love. Or at least that's the way God designed it. Some of you may not have arrived there yet. There's hope. I'm telling you, there's hope. And so the love may not look like it did on the honeymoon. But that's okay. It's not designed to stay like that. But the love can get better and deeper and richer and more meaningful as the years go on. The love relationship we have with the Lord is is not a whole lot different than that. The more we choose to spend time in the presence of God, the more we will fall in love because we get to know him. And as we get to know him, we can't help but love him more. And that increases our longing. So you're sitting here going, okay, how do I get get the ball rolling here? How do I get started? Uh, Get started. Open your Bible, get a cup of coffee or energy drink, whatever you need, and let God speak to you. Get away someplace quiet. Spend some time in prayer. Make connecting with God's people a priority in your life as you come together and experience the presence of God. If we want to take care of our souls, we have to be in the presence of God. We can't do it any other way. Why? Because only God can satisfy your soul's deepest needs. Only God can do that. Now, quite frankly, we tend to fill our lives with a lot of sorry substitutes, thinking that somehow it's going to bring us the joy and satisfaction that only God can bring. And then we come to the end of it and... We're no more satisfied than we were before we started, perhaps even less so. Why? It's because we're trying to fill the void that's within each person, within our souls. We're trying to fill it with something other than the presence of the living God. And there's nothing else and no one else who can fill that void in our lives. Listen, I know your life is busy. Mine's busy too. But we have to find time. We have to make time. We have to rearrange our schedules and do whatever it takes in order to spend time in the presence of God. The health of your soul and the souls of your children and your grandchildren will be due in large part to how much time you literally spend in the presence of God. Now, I want to add one little caveat here. You can spend time with God mowing the grass. You can spend time with God while you're washing dishes. You can spend time with God while you're roofing a house. You don't have to be in a church setting. You don't have to be down on your knees. You don't have to be there with the Bible in front of you to spend time with God. Being aware of his presence and enjoying his presence no matter where you are. In other words, 
you really don't have an excuse for not being in the presence of God because he's with you whether you realize it or not. Okay, so first, we need to spend time in the presence of God to take care of our souls. Secondly, our souls can also become weary. Our souls can become weary. Psalm 23, 1 to 3. The Lord is my shepherd. You know this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes or restores my soul. Same word. Nepes. Our souls become weary. Therefore, spend time truly resting. Spend time resting. It's interesting. Go back to Genesis. God is infinite. God is all-powerful. And yet, as you watch him speak and bring all things into creation, six days he created. And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Because God was just beat, wasn't he? I mean, he was absolutely worn slap out and he needed a nap. No! God is infinite. God is all-powerful. He never runs out of power. God never gets to the point where he goes, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of tired today. He didn't need to do that because he was tired. He didn't have a day of rest because he was tired. He had a day of rest for two reasons. One was to enjoy what he had created. Remember, he finished, and he looked, and he said, and it's all very good. Very good. And so part of our rest is simply enjoying what we've created. And so, hey, listen, it's okay to enjoy your rest. It's okay to have that steak, that hamburger with family. It's okay. God didn't want us to spend necessarily our day of rest just kind of hunker down over in a corner somewhere, depriving ourselves of everything. No, God enjoyed what he had created. He wants us to enjoy what we've created as well. So one of the purposes of rest is that enjoyment. But the other, another purpose of that, that God, the reason that God rested was to set a pattern for us. Because some of you out here, if left to your own devices, would work sun up to sundown seven days a week. God didn't make you that way. God made you to need rest. And therefore, he set the pattern for us from creation that we are to take that time, that Sabbath, to get that rest in our lives. In fact, it was so important to God, not only did he set the pattern for us in creation, he reinforced that in the Ten Commandments. In other words, Sabbath made the short list. And if God thought enough of our need for rest to put it in those Ten Commandments, then surely we need to listen to what he's saying to us about it. Jesus said this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the rest that God designed, was for you. It was for you because you need it. And when we choose to ignore God's call to rest, we put our physical and spiritual health at risk. We rob ourselves of time needed to reflect on life and appreciate God's blessings. And we fail to honor the will of our Creator. All when we choose to go seven days a week wide open instead of stopping to rest. 
Rest is a spiritual concept. So when you nap this afternoon, you don't need to feel the least bit guilty about it. You know what? When you wake up, that task is still going to be there. But you need that rest. God created us that way. And so, if we're going to take care of our souls, we need to take time to rest. Our souls also need companionship. This is interesting. Listen listen to these verses in Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. What does that say? With me. Stay here and keep watch with me. Our souls need companionship. Therefore, let us cherish and fully participate in the family of God. We need it. Now, obviously, Jesus was the very son of God. You think that Jesus' favorite song in all the world would have been, You and me against the world. God, sometimes it seems like you and me against the world. Which probably dates me considerably. Okay. You think Jesus would just go through life saying, Dad, just me and you, we got this. But when Jesus' soul was weighed down and burdened, when he went up to Gethsemane just hours before his arrest and crucifixion, what did he do? He took those who were closest to him and kept them close to him. We need that. If Jesus' soul, life, self needed that companionship, Why do we think we can get along without it? We need that for the health of our souls. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We're talking about companionship here. We need that companionship. And obviously, a cord of three strands would have the Lord woven into that companionship as well. We need that. We were never called to take care of our souls alone. God puts us in community. Jesus formed a new community that was grounded in faith and filled with love. And the writer of Hebrews warns us not to give up coming together. Why? Because when we do, we encourage one another. Encourage one another simply by coming together. We need that companionship to take care of our souls. Our souls can also become discouraged. Psalm 42, 5. My soul, why are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Yes, our souls can become discouraged. Therefore, put your hope, put your hope 
in God. Life in this fallen world, you figured this out, haven't you? Life in this fallen world has more than its fair share of disappointments. And it is awfully easy to become discouraged. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes you don't even know why you feel down. You just wake up feeling discouraged. Could it be that it's been because you have placed your hope in things that cannot actually and ultimately fulfill your hope? You've placed your hope in people, in places, in things, in dreams, in plans. You've placed your hope there. And those things can and will disappoint. You, there are going to be people that you count on. They're going to let you down. People in your own family, they're going to let you down. The plans that you made, a lot of times they're not coming to fruition. They're going to let you down. There's only one who will never let you down. Never let you down. Never, ever, ever let you down. And that is your God. He is always faithful. Do you know why? Because that's his character. If he was anything less than faithful, he would be denying himself. He is always faithful. You can always count on God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now you're going, don't worry about Melchizedek right now. You can look that up and I encourage you to do so. It'll be very beneficial and helpful for you. But what I want us to focus on right now is where our hope is said to be anchored. Our hope is anchored behind the veil. Let's think just quickly about the temple in Jerusalem, which we are told there is a perfect temple in heaven. Okay. All right. And the one in Jerusalem is actually a model of what's going on in heaven. All right. So here's the deal. The temple in Jerusalem had the, all these outer courts. And then as you worked your way in, you had the court of the priest. And eventually you had this curtain that came down. And this curtain, that's what he's talking about here. Behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies, where God had chosen to allow his spirit to dwell among his people. The anchor, Jesus says, not in that earthly tent behind that, uh, that earthly temple behind that curtain. The anchor, our anchors, we don't throw our anchor down, we throw our anchor up, okay? Our anchor, our hope, is in the living God, the presence of God. We're anchored behind the curtain in, in heaven's temple. We're an, our anchor is in the living God himself. So our hope goes beyond me. Hey, listen, I want to get physically better. I'm sick. I've had surgery. I want to get physically better. Our hope goes beyond just getting physically better. Our hope goes beyond, beyond just getting that new job. Our hope goes beyond seeing our marriage improve. Our hope goes beyond having our children grow up to be fine citizens in the community. Our hope goes beyond all those things. The hope that we have 
is a hope that believes that no matter what happens on this earth, no matter how bad things get, no matter how much I might suffer in this life, no matter what, that I have a God in heaven who loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me so that when this life is over, when I've said my last goodbye here on this earth, I get to go and spend all eternity with him forever and ever and ever. I'm telling you, that means whatever people might do to me and whatever, however people might disappoint me in this life, I've got a hope, I've got a hope, I've got a hope that is anchored in heaven that will not ever change. That is why Paul could say for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I cannot lose. No matter what happens to me on this life, go ahead, take my life. I, when I check out here, I check in the heavenly Hilton. Okay, I've got a place to go. I've got a hope that is eternal, something that will not be taken away. It's forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Now I'm telling you, that is why Paul and Silas, who were locked up in stocks and thrown into prison in Philippi, that's why they were, they're sitting there and the, the guards are sitting up there playing cards or rolling dice. They probably weren't playing cards. You know, they were playing whatever guard, games Roman guards played. Okay, they're, they're, they're just guarding this guy. And all of a sudden, from the depths of the prison, they got two guys locked up there and down in, stock, in stocks. By the way, they've been beaten with rods. Okay, this is worse than when my mama got a switch after me. They've been beaten with rods, which means they likely have cracked ribs at the least. Maybe a messed up vertebrae or two. They have been severely beaten, locked in stocks, thrown into jail. And the jailers are up there playing their games and they hear this song drifting up through the stone, echoing off the stones as it drifts their way up to them and, and they're down there singing hymns. They're having a worship service after all they had endured. How in the world is that even possible? It's because their hope was not anchored in anything other than the presence of the living God. In the life that they had through Jesus Christ. And sadly, the reason so many of us live disappointed lives is because we put our hope in something that is cannot live up to our hopes. But when we put our hope in Him, He is always faithful. He is always true. Put your hope in God. Teach your children, your grandchildren, to put their hope in God. Listen, your children, grandchildren are going to live with disappointments too. What they need to hear from you, what they desperately need to hear from you is that there's a hope that goes beyond this life. Because some of you have had children whose lives have absolutely collapsed. Haven't you? I mean, it's just smoke and debris. And a lot of it they did to themselves. They had dreams 
They grew up, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a, a fireman, I want to be uh, a lawyer. I don't, I don't think too many children say I want to be a lawyer. But they might. I want to be a farmer, whatever. And then as an adult, you look at their life and it's in shambles. Have you taught them all along that even when life throws you the wickedest curveball, that there's still hope? Yesterday, it was kind of funny because I'm a Texas Rangers fan, which means I'm used to long-suffering. We used to name our dogs after Texas Ranger players. Anyway. Yesterday, the Rangers were playing uh, Detroit. And they had a uh, substantial lead, 11-1, to 1, I think, at the time. It was maybe in the 6th, 7th inning. I'm, I'm watching this game. Now, most of you would tune out and say, you know what, this game's over. I'm just going to go on and do something else. But, but I left the game on because I get to see the Rangers so seldom. I just, you know, we left it on. And I'm sitting there, and, and I, get, I get distracted, but I'm looking at the game, and, and we'd pop up, or we'd have a runner in scoring position, and you know, hit, it, hit it into a double play or something like that. And I'd be fussing at this thing, and Nancy's fussing at me. We're not really fussing. She's just gently reminding me, dude, it's 11 to 1. Okay, this game is in the books. It's in, it's in the bank. It's as good as over. And you are stressing over a strikeout or a throwout? What in the world? How must God look into our lives and wonder what is going on with these people? Do they not know that I have already won? Do they not know that the victory is theirs because faith is the victory that overcomes the world? They're sitting there. Hey, listen, they just struck out. They they just got hit with a fastball in the ribs. Okay, that's not a good thing. But the score is four billion to nothing. This game is over. The end result is done. And you are worried and fretting over every little error that's taking place on the field right now. Now, that's a ridiculous, ridiculous thing for us to do. And yet we do it all the time. Why? Because our hope is here. And if we're honest, here's our hope. Once we can shift our anchor, pull it up from the people, pull it up from the places, pull it up from the plans, pull it up from the dreams we have here, and stick our anchor where it belongs, behind the veil in the presence of God, then we have a hope that cannot be rattled and a life that can have joy and satisfaction beyond anything this world could ever hope to offer. So quit saying, you know what, if I were only rich, because you are. You have the wealth of heaven. You don't need anything else. Take care of your souls. Take care of your hearts. Take care of your minds. And I beg you, teach your children to take care of theirs too. Teach your grandchildren to take care of theirs too. You may have come here today and and God has spoken to you 
about the weariness in your soul. God may have spoken to you about the distance that exists between you and him right now, not by his doing, but by your own. You pulled yourself away. God may have spoken to you about your cavalier attitude about connecting with the church. The church is a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing. It's not essential for me and my spiritual, emotional, physical health. God may have been speaking to you about the despair, that dark cloud that covers your heart. As we prepare to invite you to respond to whatever the Lord has for you, let me share this verse with you. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls.